Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 11, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, I'm fortunate to have, uh, in the nick of time, Tom Buckmuller, a health economist, to talk about the Affordable Health Care Act. And boy, it's changing by the day with some of the newer provisions and uh, adoption delays. And he's going to, uh, he'll be the health economist that's just going to be the man on that detail today. Then hold on to whatever makes you feel secure and centered as Daniel Estelin will surely shake us up to the core with his messages in his newly released book, Trans Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back, everybody, to Ask a Leader. My first guest today is Tom Buckmuller to interpret for us in a more nuanced way than what we've been hearing, the rough and tumble of the rollout of the Affordable Health Care Act, cramming, I think, think a semester's worth of lectures on health care policy in under a, one half an hour for us. Tom Buckmuller is a health economist at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Many of you may recall when he was on the business faculty at UCI's Mirage School of Business. Tom's research focuses on the economics of health insurance and related public policy issues. He received his B.A. at Carleton College and his Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin. Among many distinguished posts, Tom was for a year during Obama's first term the senior health economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the executive office of the president, wherein one of the perks he enjoyed was trying a few frames in the White House bowling lanes. Among Tom Buckmuller's recent works, uh, he examines the relationship between the employer-sponsored insurance and labor market outcomes, interactions between the public sector and private insurance markets, and consumer demand for health insurance. He comes to us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Tom. Nice to be here. Okay. Well, let's first talk about the coverage projections as of early February after substantial glitches in the enrollment process are being sorted out while the public scrambles for an understanding of how the system works and various regulations of the Affordable Health Care Act mandate having been postponed. Who sought the coverage and does it make a dent towards sustaining the health care system as it's been being reformed? Well, you know, as you mentioned, the the uh tough rollout, the, the website problems and um, all those challenges meant that early enrollment uh, grew much less quickly than expected. Um, there are a lot of people, as you know, who tried to sign up uh, in the first few weeks but couldn't. A lot of those those difficulties have been smoothed over. I, I think the websites are working better. Um, and uh, from what I've read, um, the current projections are that uh, the the exchanges may not be um, too far below the, the the goal. So the goal for the end of March was seven million people. Um, the Congressional Budget Office right now, their estimate is six million. Um, it's it's hard to say. We may get seven. We'll get close. Um, so it, it's not that far off. And I think that um, one thing we can expect to see is a real big flurry of activity right up against the deadline in March. Um, at the end of March. Yeah, yeah. because um, the, the, there are different deadlines 
if people wanted to have coverage um, starting January 1, coverage that's in effect right now, they needed to be enrolled essentially by Christmas. Um, and so I think the people who really pushed to make that deadline uh, are people who either were transitioning from an existing individual coverage plan and wanted to, to maintain continuity, um, or people who had previously been shut out of the system um, and were anxious to get coverage. And so those are going to tend to be um, older, sicker people um, who, who are anxious to, to use their benefits right away. Um, the next major deadline of, of March 31st is for avoiding the, the individual mandate penalty. So that's going to be the, the, the enrollment that comes right up against that deadline is going to be uh, disproportionately the so-called young invincibles, um, people who, uh, you know, 20-somethings who are getting coverage uh, to avoid the mandate, getting coverage because their, their mom tells them to, um, but they don't really expect to use a lot of services. So they're not um, in a huge hurry to, to, to have coverage. They don't care. Uh, that much if they have coverage in February and March, um, but I expect we'll see a lot of them signing up towards the end of March. Do you think that with some of these extensions that people are going to not take the March uh, deadline and uh, seriously and uh, hope for uh, the prayer that they can get a little bit better understanding of, of their options and uh, it, they hazard to uh, wait until it's too late? Um, yeah, that, that would sort of be a, a reasonable way to interpret the way things have happened so far, I mean, just about every deadline has been delayed to a certain extent. So um, you would not be irrational to think that, oh, if I miss March 31st, um, it'll be fine. Um, but, and you also point to another issue, which is it, it takes time to sort of sort through your options, a lot figure of time. out what you want. And so it, it could be that not so much that people are procrastinating, but, um, you know, this is not like going to Amazon and buying a book. You need to... to um, Compare plans, compare premiums, try to figure out uh, are the doctors that you want to see, the hospital that you want to go to, are they covered? And frankly, that information, I think, um, has not been uh, has not been strong. So I think a lot of people have been frustrated in their ability to, to do real comparison shopping. Well, I'll vouch for that personally, about how, to, how some certain maintenance programs, whether those carry into um, even the, the best, the high end, the platinum plan, whether yeah, finding a comparability with transitioning away from your own uh, winding down coverage, it, it is really complicated. And I, I sort of cry foul when I hear others covering this and saying, what a bunch of procrastinators. But I think uh, even a sophisticated public is having uh, an ordeal sorting this all out. But you were, you were talking about uh, projections based on those the, the, ex, the, the programs that are covered, um, this is the state extension programs. But what about the states where uh, there, there isn't this kind of a program, where there's less of a state agency mediating those explanations? Is that, um, is that projection going to change uh, in any way by the March deadline? Um, well, it's interesting. You know, when this plan was initially envisioned, the thought was that um, a lot of this would be outsourced to the states. You know, states historically have um, regulated insurance markets. States uh, regulate health care providers. And the thought was um, let each state tailor their exchange to the, the local circumstances, and, and that'll be um, a better consumer experience. M very few states, California is one of them, 
chose to um, to do their own exchange. And so the federal government ended up um, being responsible for uh, the exchange in most states. So it may be branded in some cases as, as a state exchange, but the, the federal government is, is really doing all the work. And that, I think, probably contributed to, to some of the, the technical difficulties, um, because I don't think that, that CMS, uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies or Services, um, had initially plan to be taking such a, a lead role. Um, what we're seeing is, is sort of interesting that you have some state exchanges like California uh, that are really on top of things and are sort of a model for how to do this um, are doing better than the federal exchange. But you also have some states that were very anxious to go their own way and, and put a lot of effort into it and um, and, and it's not going well. So I'm thinking here about Maryland and, and Oregon, um, where they, uh, you know, thought they were up to the task, and, and it's turned out to be much more difficult. Um, so, I, so I think this is part of the the learning process. Um, I think, you know, we, we knew that the first year was going to be um, a little bit rough. Uh, I don't think people anticipated it would be this difficult, um, but hopefully by you know, fall of 2014, when people are choosing their plans for, for 2015, um, a lot of these technical issues will be solved, um, and a lot of the information that people are looking for as consumers will be more readily available. Well, I think we can use Oregon as an example of how utterly complicated the Affordable Health Care Act uh, is in implementation. And Oregon's had their own, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with their own health care um, state plan history, but if they've, they've had the capacity to uh, develop a pretty comprehensive coverage for its residents. So if they're having difficulty transitioning to this uh, national uh, health care agenda, then uh, it, it does tell us how difficult it was. An order of magnitude much larger than the transition to Social Security or Medicare. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting that in some cases that the, the the, the cross-state variation really is along traditional red state, blue state distinctions. Right. If you look at the states that are not expanding Medicaid, um, they're, they're southern states, uh, western states, red states. But there are sort of exceptions to, you know, these stereotypes. One is that, that Oregon, as you said, you would think that they would have been um, as well prepared as any state to do this, um, and, and they've had trouble. One of the states has held out as, as a great example of uh, a well-functioning exchange and, and, and really um, effective outreach and enrollment is Kentucky. Kentucky, um, yes. That, that, that's, you know, they um, got going early and, and they invested a lot in this and, and uh, uh, they're having very positive results. So, so, so I think there will be lessons that we learn from, from different states' experiences that will make the, the program stronger going forward. For those uh, st- the red states that are receptive to, I mean, I, I, are they paying attention to Kentucky, or they're saying, "Well, well, good for you guys," but we we still have a message we have to to project here, of undermining. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that um, the, the politics are obviously complicated, and you know, there's sort of a uh, I don't know if you call them purple states, but but states um, that have either Republican governor, Republican legislature, or both where they're trying to, to thread the needle um, and, you know, protect themselves in primaries from, from Tea Party challenges, but at the same time do what they sort of know is, is the right policy thing. And so, um, 
you know, my state of Michigan, uh, we've got a Republican governor, Republican legislature. Um, governor Snyder is, uh, you know, true. Um, he's from business. He's, he's not an ideologue. He's not, um, you know, didn't ride the, the Tea Party wave. And he very quickly sort of did the math and figured out that um, whatever he might have thought of the Affordable Care Act, that um, doing the Medicaid expansion uh, was good for the state. Because um, as you know, the, um, in the initial years, uh, the federal government pays 100% of the cost, and that tapers down. Um, but even you know, by 2018, uh, going forward, the federal government pays 90% of the cost. Um, so, you know, we're looking in Michigan to ensure the projections are maybe uh, 400,000 people through the Medicaid expansion, um, and nominally at 10 cents on the dollar. Um, and in fact, if you if you dig a little bit deeper and look at uh, some of the savings that are going to come about because of the Medicaid expansion, you know, current mental health programs are no longer going to be necessary because these people who they serve are now insured, um, the, the savings to the state over a 10-year period, uh, we've done some calculations here, um, it's about a billion dollars. Wow. Um, so so it, it, it makes sense for the state, you know, the state, um, in, in every state, uh, the hospital industry is, is, is lobbying to say, hey, um, we're facing this really huge burden of uncompensated care. And if you were to expand Medicaid, um, that problem's going to get a lot, uh, a lot better. And so, so what we've done in Michigan, what the legislature did and the governor, is um, did the, the, the Medicaid expansion sort of their own way with um, a little more emphasis on uh, market incentives, a little more emphasis on um, personal responsibility. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. There are other states that are, that are trying to, like Arkansas uh, has taken the lead, although I think they're running into mm. some political problems now of essentially – Rather than expanding Medicaid, um, using those funds to buy people private insurance on the exchange. Um, so again, it's it's you know we'd like to see everybody get coverage. Um, you know when, when when states like Texas and and uh, Florida choose not to expand, um, we're seeing millions of people who are going to go without insurance because of that. But in these um, in some of these states, we're, we're seeing uh, innovative approaches, and and that's. Um, you know, potentially very interesting things we can learn from that. Well, I think maybe you want to give the Ross School of Business at, at, at University of Michigan any credit in conferring with the Governor Snyder on uh, how he's adjusted that Medicaid provision. Um, you know, I, I, I think the Governor is a very well. Give him give the school credit in the sense that he's an alum. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but he's he's a, a a very successful businessman. I I, I think um, accountant by background, uh, very quickly. Figured out one one of the things that he really focused on, though, and this is um, other researchers at at the university um, provide useful evidence. Was he said he didn't want to expand Medicaid if there wasn't adequate uh, capacity in in primary care. Um, he didn't want to ah. give a lot of people Medicaid coverage and find that they were crowding emergency rooms. So um, some researchers here at the university uh, did a very quick survey of of physicians in the state um, to get a sense for how many of them would accept uh, new patients if, if Medicaid expanded. And the results suggested that um, overall uh, there was adequate capacity, um, and so that gave the governor some comfort that, that he wasn't just going to be uh, contributing to overcrowded emergency rooms. 
Um, so, so that was a nice example of um, sort of evidence-based public policy. Well, that's what I sort of rue in the in media that states news doesn't travel very well to other states, and it's really a great opportunity to hear from a healthcare economist what's going on in that healthcare economist state. That it's a it's a stellar kind of a model. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Tom Buckmuller, healthcare economist at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan here on KUCI eighty eight point nine FM in Irvine and streaming on the web in examining rooms around the world on KUCI dot org. Well, let's talk now. There's there's breaking news last week with the Congressional Budget Office's report issued. And then if we have time and what's a lot of remaining uh, to talk about uh, yesterday's uh, extension for small businesses uh, in meeting the, the mandate, the employer mandate, let's talk about what some of the Congressional Budget Office report revealed that's not quite getting the play that some it's being uh, interpreted. Let's get let's set our get back to the nuanced interpretation of what is actually happening with enrollment and the uh, the impacts in the program. So uh, let, let's let's start with uh, the impact uh, on the the federal deficit. Well, so so um, I think that the big news actually that, that came out of the, the the new congressional budget office report had to do with the, the labor market effects. So exactly. Maybe I, I could summarize that quickly because that's something that that yes. received a lot of attention in the press and and not always um, nuanced and not always well understood. So so the congressional budget office um, is the official scorekeeper for uh, you know the government programs and legislation, and you know when. The Affordable Care Act was proposed and then and then signed. Uh, they were the ones that that did the estimates of what is this going to cost, what is this going to mean for the deficit. Um, but they also uh, consider a broader set of, of economic outcomes. And so one of the things that that sort of factors into estimates of, of you know tax revenue and and the deficit is what does a program do uh, to economic activity, and in particular, what does it do to, to labor markets. And so there's a number of different ways that the Affordable Care Act might affect um, labor markets, uh, affecting both labor demand, the behavior of firms, employers, and labor supply, the, the yes. behavior of workers. And the, the, they, they revisited some of their estimates and um, came out with a report earlier this week that said uh, the impact on um, labor markets was going to be a little bit larger than expected. And it was going to reduce um, uh, in hours of work by something equivalent to um, two million full-time equivalent employees. At least, um, yes. Now that wasn't to say that that two million people would lose their jobs, but if you if you sort of add up uh, the the changes in hours and the changes in number of people who who are employed full-time, part-time, it works out to be about um, one or two percent of 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 total output. Or put in people terms, about two million workers. All right. So it's it's and and there's always a difficulty in assigning value to the fact that it does trim the number of jobs some households have to maintain because the pressure of seeking enough revenue, uh, earning enough to to provide for some kind of a health care budget with that affordable health care provision, there needs to be fewer jobs held down per household, and that intangible value of of more time tending to household needs, uh, it just doesn't get incorporated into uh, the din of uh, ideological uh, debate on the impact of, on the labor market of the Affordable Health Care Act. 
Yeah, I mean, as it, you suggest, a lot of this, um, uh, the the bulk of this this change um, in behavior or, or projected change in behavior is coming from not from employers saying, "Oh, I can't afford to hire more people," or "I've got to cut cut jobs," "I'm going to lay people off." It's from workers uh, volunteer voluntarily choosing to work less, um, and there's a couple of different. Uh, channels by which that can happen. One, which I think you alluded to, is you know today uh, you essentially have to work full time to to get good private insurance, um, and so there are people who are working more hours than they'd really like to work in order to to get benefits for their family. Um, and so when you introduce the, this new source of coverage through the exchanges, um, and it's subsidized and it's and it's affordable. Um, it frees up people to do things like, you know, the 62-year-old the, the that's hanging on to this full-time job to keep benefits but really wants to retire early can retire early. And, uh, you know, the parent with young children who's working full-time but would really like to cut back and work part-time to spend more time with his or her kids, um, now they can do that. Um, and, you know, this this idea of job lock, uh, I'm in this job that I don't like, and I'd like to work for a small firm, or I'd like to um, start my own business. Uh, these new forms of insurance um, make that, uh, that that problem less acute. Um, at the same time, that there are, are some labor supply effects that, that are maybe uh, you know less positive. You yes. know, the, the exchanges have um, subsidies for insurance, and these subsidies phase out as your income increases. And that phase-out is essentially uh, equivalent to a tax. So now if I work more, um, I get more money in my paycheck, but I lose money in terms of this, this premium tax credit subsidy. And so um, you know, we, we know that when you, you know, re- reduce the returns to work, people work less. And so that's part of the, the effect, too. So it's, it's, you know, it's hard to interpret. You can't say it's all good or all bad. Um, I think, and it's a projection. I think the CBO is very open to say that there's a lot of moving pieces, and so they can't, you know, they don't want to be overly precise. Um, but I think that the, the the clear message, and if you've seen follow-up interviews with, with Doug Elmendorf, the head of the CBO, is that this is not about layoffs. This is not about right. um, a reduction in demand. Right, right. Well, thanks. Uh, this, for those of you just tuned in, we're talking for a few minutes longer with healthcare economist at the University of Michigan, Tom Buckmiller, here on KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine. Well, and then part of this discussion with the Congressional Budget Office report, too, is the extent to which uh, part-time employment has actually it's not increased uh, because of the that was anticipated by the opposition to Health Care Act that there was going to be uh, the employers were going to trim full time positions to part time so they could get out from underneath the full employment mandators ma- uh, employers mandate. Um, so, what did the CBO have to say about that? Um, I, I think that the CBO said that we looking over the last couple of years. Um, it's hard to see that the Affordable Care Act has had any impact on uh, the number or percent of part-time jobs. Um, you know, coming out of a, a recession, the recovery's been kind of slow. Um, there's probably more people who are working part-time than than, than want to be working part-time, um, but that's not the result of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, the, the, the story that might link the Affordable Care Act to part-time work is that um, – 
when the employer provisions uh, go fully into effect, um, large employers uh, or employers with 50 or more employees are going to have to provide insurance to those employees who work more than 30 hours right. a week. And so for certain small subset of, of, of firms, um, there may be an incentive to to take workers who are, let's say, working 35 or 40 hours and not receiving benefits. Um, you, you have the choice of either offering them benefits uh, or possibly shifting their, their schedule so that they're working, you know, 28 hours a week, and now they're no longer required to be covered. Um, that hasn't kicked in yet, so, right. so it's, it's hard to see. The only way that would have an effect is if uh, employers are anticipating this. Um, initially, it was supposed to go into effect this year. Uh, they, they pushed it off to 2015, and the news yesterday was that now they're going to push it off um, to 2016. even further. Right, right, right. So that moving target makes it really difficult to assess what the impact will be for the uh, full-time, part-time split in, at the employee. Well, uh, th- then, um, as far as our looking at projections here, the estimate of the number of the non-elderly people who have health insurance, it's going to increase markedly uh, by $13 million in 2014, $20 million in 2015, and $25 million in each of the subsequent years. Is that what you were expecting was going to be happening? And that and the CBO had a little bit to say about that. I'm not really clear on what that's. I think that's their estimation. So, is that what you've been, what you're expecting, or is there still too many moving targets to really uh, estimate anything of real significance here? They're they're probably the best source. Um, they run what's called a micro simulation model, where they, um, uh, you know, sort of big complex model of the economy. There are a couple other outfits that that have their own versions of the model. And while their assumptions differ, uh, their estimates are all pretty close. So that's, you know, I think that's that's a consensus forecast. Um, the original back in 2010, I, th- I think the number was was more like 30 million, maybe 32 million. And and the discrepancy there is just those states that that have chosen not to expand Medicaid. Um, and and I, you know, as I said, the initial exchange enrollment's a little bit low, but I think CBO. Uh, assumes that that will be back up on the, the originally projected path um, by the end of 2015. So the slope gets the, steeper. The, the, yeah, the, the big difference between you know the 25 million and, and earlier estimates is is all Medicaid. Okay, all Medicaid. I, that makes sense. Well, in the time remaining, I guess I want to squeeze in the question that. Uh, that is being considered, uh, and it was in the Sunday uh, New York Times op-ed piece with Harvard economist David Cutler breaking down the decline in healthcare spending. How would you explain the decline in spending uh, in the healthcare sector? I mean, there's a number of reasons. What 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 in that decline concerns you the most? As we wrap up the interview, well, it's you know it, it, it's fascinating because this is one of the big motivations for healthcare reform was to bring down the growth in health spending. And in fact, um, the last few years, uh, health spending has been growing at historically low rates. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in trying to, to parse that out and figure out what's explaining it. And, and, it, and it's hard to do. Um, one explanation that people give that must be part of it um, is the weak economy. Um, you right. know, that, that as uh, people lost jobs and, and lost employer-sponsored insurance, they used less care. Um, but the limit to that argument is that we saw a slowdown in Medicare, um, and so senior citizens aren't losing their insurance, uh, and, and they're 
somewhat more buffered from from the economy. Um, within private insurance, you, you've seen a shift towards high deductible plans, and so um, you know people quote have more skin in the game and maybe are a little bit more uh, reluctant to use care. That might be part of it, but um, you know the the bulk of spending is is always coming from really high cost cases, and so that's not people who are who are you know just getting to their deductible. Right. Um, you know, I think the administration would like to to take a lot of claim, a lot of credit, uh, and say this is the Affordable Care Act. Um, a lot of the things in the Affordable Care Act that are most likely to, to reduce spending probably haven't um, fully taken hold yet. So it's hard to. I don't think that's the the, the driving thing. I mean, there are a few small things that have happened, um, penalties for hospital readmissions that that have really, you know, yes. reduced hospital readmissions, which are costly. Right. Um, so I think I think it's I think it's it's a it's a mystery. Um, there's a lot of good theories. I think for the next couple of years we'll see more discussion, more debate. Um, and then a big question is, is this a, you know, one-time change or um, are, are we on a different track? And if we're on a different track, that that's um, really good for, for the federal deficit. It's really good for employers. Right. Um, it's, it's what we want to see. Well, or w- with a little more distance, we'll look back and see how deep the trough, the, the Great Recession really was. And that it could explain just how, you, like you said, with the Medicare patients spending less, they're spending less on everything because of how deep the recession is. So it's all sectors spending less because of how, how grave the situation was with the, the Great Recession. Possibly that might give us a little more insight in a few more years. Right. Okay. Well, Tom Buckmuller, a health economist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, thanks so much for your time today. It's been good talking with you. And a, a oh, long-awaited nuanced discussion. Take care. Bye-bye. What's new? Welcome back. My next guest, as I said, is author Daniel Estelin, who's recently published Trans Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction. Some muckraking edifies and leaves you angry. Estelin's particular brand will edify and unnerve you. Daniel Estelin is an award-winning journalist and author of, among 12 books, The True Story of the Builder Group book, now published in 64 countries and translated into 41 languages, so you are not alone in getting a glimpse of the possible as well as the actual. And I, I want to say, uh, this last weekend, I did. there were two things that completely put me in, put everything in perspective for me. One was I spent the weekend in Death Valley and the other as I finished Daniel Estelin's book. And so now uh, I realize how, how unwieldy the larger elements are there. So he lives in Europe and he comes to us today from Madrid. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Daniel Estelin. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Okay. Well, let's start. Given the possible is now, this has been one, as I said, one of the most unnerving reads I can recall, and I'm the better off for reading it. Who's your audience? And I mean, parts are are, are pretty tough sell t- uh, to skeptics, skeptics like me. I don't think uh, it's uh, it's it's uh, my intent to uh, to try to sell the book. I think that uh, the idea is what we do is. Um, I explain uh, the very near future, and uh, based on very, very solid evidence, 
on uh, reports which are now public and uh, you can easily acquire them via internet. One is Strategic Trends Report 2007-2036. Uh, Ten years ago when it first came out, it was a secret source document on the future of humanity, which was a blueprint for uh, British government. And there's other reports, The Age of Transition, NBIC Conference, etc. And basically what the book does, it explains that uh, uh, what the future is going to look like from the point of view of technology. And one of the conclusions, and again, it's, uh, it's based on the report, and the report is undeniable. It is from the British government. They talk about what's going to happen in the next generation, and it's fairly unnerving, uh, uh, you know, realizing that you're reading something which was prepared by some of the foremost experts in the world, and they're talking about, you know, the, uh, uh, the conditions of life for humanity in the next 20 years or so, like of food, water, medicine, proper hygiene, education, Basic human necessities would spell collapse. This is right from the report. And then without mincing words, the report goes on to say that the growing gap between majority and a small number of highly visible super-rich is likely to pause an increasing threat to social order. They talk about, you know, the collapse of the financial world economic order, um, of uh, countries being uh, replaced with megacities of 20 or 30 million people each. And then they say by 2035, these megacities themselves will collapse. And so this is the near future we're looking at. And I think one of the uh, conclusions, and it is, uh, you know, fairly, I wouldn't say terrifying, but it's, it's startling, is the fact that the generation of our children, you know, the kids who are 15, 20 years old today, are the last generation of fully human beings on the planet Earth, their children. In other words, my grandchildren. They will be uh, transhuman, they will be post-human, man-machine or person-machine, cyborgs, beings who are not totally human okay. as a result of this amazing, you know, technological, technological developments in, in synthetic biology. And uh, so we, as humanity, are standing at the cusp of this greatest evolutionary change in mankind ever seen, and it's all based and the result of this incredible technology, which the elite, not the rest of us, the elite, have at their fingertips because, again, what they're doing is they're using the gazillions of dollars that they have in wealth, you know, to develop much more so than the rest of us because we, 99.9% of the world's population, are being sent to hell in a handbasket as a result of this destruction, wholesale organized destruction of the world economy with deindustrialization, zero growth. And we see it in Detroit and we see it in Argentina, in Venezuela. We see it across Europe. Spain is a great example. You know, Cyprus is a great example. Greece you know, Southeast Asia. So this is on the one hand, they're sending us to hell while they're getting ready to go into space. That's basically the description of what we're well, looking at in the very near future. Well, Daniel, I, I don't want you to, I know there's precious little time to cover everything that you have uh, raised in your book. So I want you, I want to do credit to all the work that you're doing uh, toward this book and others. So I, um, I don't want to sort of blow the hair back on everybody and they're, they're going to fail to hear this and they're, they're going to go to the podcast and hear it over and over again. Oh, we can just try to break it down a little bit. You've been following the reach of the Builder Group for a long time. Why don't you briefly tell us a little bit about how you got started on the Bilderberg Group that is a sort of a, maybe the kernel of this network that has such clout in worldwide technological trends? Well, Bilderberg uh, Group was a very important element of the oligarchical structures of the Cold War period. I'm talking about the 50s and the early 60s. And that in and of itself it was a very you know, significant factor because what it meant was that Bilderberg Trilateral Commission Council for Relations was a vehicle through which private financier uh, oligarchical interests were able to impose their policies on what is nominally sovereign governments. But Bilderberg and, and such organizations, they're not, you know, the 
the, the you know the super secret society that everyone makes it out to be. It's you know they're a conveyor belt uh, where certain decisions are made you know at a certain you know mid mid level of power uh, because a real you know power is it works on a much higher level. And but it is true that organizations such as Bilderberg and the Trilateral Commission and then the American version of Bilderberg, which is Council of Foreign Relations. Um, they do have, you know, certain clouds in the sense that they do meet, they do, you know, decide through consensus on a direction of policy. And people may say that, again, you know, it's, how is it possible when, you know, so many people, you know, actually, you know, get together and, and agree on things when, you know, me and my neighbor can't agree who's going to take the garbage out. Elite <laughs> circles work on different levels. They work, you know, on cycles which are much longer, much bigger, you know, much far-sighted than what we work on. So their idea True. is, you know, we the people are the enemy of them, the elite. And these elite circles have always, you know, gotten together and worked against the rest of society, which is, again, it's, it's easy to see how the destruction of the world economy is all around us. And the reason the economy is being destroyed has nothing to do with what most people think. They think, well, why would they do that if the Rockefeller has, you know, and people don't have money, they won't be able to buy Rockefeller shoes. Rockefeller doesn't need to sell shoes. And when I say Rockefeller, I'm just talking about, you know, it's, it's a, a metaphor for powerful people. Right. They already control 90% of the world's wealth. What they need is for us to be fewer instead of more, because if there are more people, and you have more people as a result of progress and development, so you have technological development for us. You have progress and development. You have, you know, wealth, you know, bigger families, more mouths to feed. And for them to eat, most of us have to die. And this is basically, you know, how, how, how we should look at, at, you know, the economic cycles of what's going on around us. It's kind of a, you can call it a slow burn. You don't want to, you know, blow everything up all at once because, you know, then you have all the unknowns in, in this equation, which they may not be able to deal with. But if you can destroy things slowly, you know, one sector at a time, one city at a time, as we're seeing it right now in the United States and across the world, it just makes it easier to control the population. Well, and if you go... Yes, and, and I think uh, Naomi Klein in her shock doctrine, doctrine, she gave us a heads up on this notion about how the public or the individual can be psychologically reeling and therefore be uh, compromised cognitively to ascertain what kinds of policy changes have these have consequential impacts on their lives. So uh, I, I think we're, we're uh, well informed, uh, if we're paying attention, uh, to some of those pernicious kinds of, of, of influences going on. But I, I do want to get at the, the end game that you talk about is population trimming here, trimming the herd worldwide. And I, I think that I just want to disagree that I see that the end game is is certainly control that clout just gets more and more concentrated. I don't know that I mean, with with the uh, operatives like the uh, what's operational in something like what the shock doctrine talks about, what you talk about, uh, and yeah. being able to really literally, as you said in the the cyborg uh, development, how how minds can be penetrated and influenced and monitored and reconfigured and everything, uh, that the the clout could be an end game in and of itself. I I really uh, I have to wonder about this this whole population uh, declining. Uh, you know, uh, you know you... the whole thing about uh, the, the uh, reduce the population is not the end game. It's just one of the elements. I mean, you, you reduce the population, and then what? Uh, then what do you do? You know, you have to do something. And the point is that uh, it's, it's, uh, the end game is, 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 is it's a different phenomenon. It's, the point is that, you know, if you look around us, you know, the technology is so advanced right now. It's so incredibly advanced that we can do things that, you know, we never thought possible. 
uh, right. from, you know, everything from, you know, a movement such as transhumanist movement where the idea of downloading a consciousness onto an avatar of your choosing, you know, combining that consciousness with the consciousness of everyone else on the, on, on the planet, which is called singularity, is the idea of, you know, it's, it's a, you know, hive mind mentality. And the people think, well, what, you know, what the heck is this hive mind thing? Well, we already have that. Right. It's called cloud, except that, you know, in your computer, you just upload your files onto a cloud. And then the idea of, of high mentality is the idea of being able to upload, your, you know, your consciousness. And upon being uploaded, you could live forever within a computer, you know, generated reality, you know, leaving the physical body behind. Again, these kind of metaphysical concepts, which for most people are very difficult to understand because, you know, it's not something you can actually touch. You're extrapolating things into the very near future. But the point is that, again, with everything we see around us, you know, one of these grand visions that the transhumanist movement has is upon uploading your mind onto the holographic bodies, three-dimensional holograms, you know, blurring reality and virtual reality. And we already have this kind of stuff, you know, with, uh, with Google, uh, you know, uh, uh, glasses and, and, uh, and augmented reality. But the idea is, again, everything from, you know, brain-machine interfaces, which would allow the control of machinery with the brain itself, implantable brain chips, all that kind of stuff, which sounds so wacky and so, you know, uh, almost, uh, I know, science fiction-like. But these kinds of augmentations, you know, they already exist from people who have, you know, body parts which aren't theirs, you know, uh, bionic eyes which they need to be able to see, you know, he uh, hearing uh, aids. Augmentation can be a huge business uh, for the governments and for the corporations. Well, we've been in... Yes. Well, I just want to mention, for those of you who've just joined us, we are talking to Daniel Estelin. He's recently published the book Trans Evolution, The Coming of Age of Human Deconstruction here on Ask a Leader on 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming all over the world on KUCI.org. Uh, well, I think we don't even have to go that far yet into what you've described uh, to see some of those pernicious trends of of matters beyond our control when, uh, let's say, first we've got, we've got the early adopters that are already on, on various kinds of platforms that provide all manner of data that the elite can mine and, uh, and use to very specific ends. I mean, we all are dawning on that, but we didn't think of that when the, the, those first uh, smartphones were coming out and first other uh, uh, websites that we were putting everything and anything into, uh, networks of, of any kind we can mention. So that, that's, already, uh, that's already been happening, and we're slowly dawning on not only is the data being mined, but there are then step measures taken after that to anticipate our next move. And that is what you're talking about is seeding those um, those physical kinds of infrastructures in, in actually to an, the the human being's own mind. And I, I also want to say that that because I, I don't want to um, I don't want to miss this point here is that we're all reaching for certain kinds of medical fixes. I'm thinking specifically neurological medical fixes, and in that fix is a transferable skill, a capacity for that uh, neurological um, fix to 
be used in some more nefarious ways. And so you've talked about that in, by the end of the book. So you can tell us that. Yeah, exactly. Follow that you know, street. the whole thing about technology, technology is an amazing thing. We need technology. And, you know, people, uh, because this is such a, uh, such a, uh, a new book, you know, I, I can't think of, a, of, of another word, uh, and, uh, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable, it's an awkward read in the sense that, you know, there's, there's been nothing written like this ever. No. It's the first book that actually explains all these concepts as one, everything from space exploration, you know, to transhumanist movement, you know, to, to how the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the economy is being used to destroy the population, uh, you know, genetically modified crops, synthetic biology, and just all the elements of really, really high tech. But the point is technology is an amazing thing. We need high tech. There are 7 billion people on the planet Earth. For us to go to the next plateau, which is 10 billion, which we're going to reach in about 10 to 12 years, for us to go there, we need really high-end technology in order to be able to provide for all these people. Otherwise, if we don't have high tech, there's going to be a population breakdown, which is what the elite want. That's why we're in the cycle of you know, zero growth, deindustrialization of society, you know, and it's all being done on purpose. But it all depends on how that technology uh, is going to be used. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the whole you know, augmentation business. But, you know, we've been integrating ourselves with technology for decades. But the thing is that now the next step is they are pushing implantable data chips into our bodies, which will give away huge amounts of information to governments and corporations. So the question is, is has it come to the point when we will be actively encouraging you know, people to exchange our perfectly functional body parts for upgraded applications, as we do with telephones, on new cars, on new bicycles, on new everything, whatever well, and, that, you know, gadgets that we have. And you this explain that. already being done. And you Right, and you explain that so we can give an example is how uh, a certain kind of uh, the cyborg the ch- uh, piece, the chip that it would allow us to read a 500-page book in less than a second. I was well, thinking, you know, oh, great. Intel I'd... is working on sensors that will be implanted in the brain that will be able to directly control computers and cell phones. You know, that's an amazing thing because literally, you know, if you can pump data directly into your you know, brain, then you, you can read a, a 500- or a 1,000-page book in, you know, one millionth of one second. And you can download, as you would, you know, on, on a pen drive, the entire, you know, a, 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 your nether space of, of Internet uh, onto your brain uh, in, in a matter of hours. So that's how smart we can be. But again, you know, what happens is that, well, this, you know, if you look at it on, on, on the negative aspect, for us, you know, to be able to take uh, and accept these augmentations, we'll have to take drugs for the rest of our lives to make sure they work. And these drugs are dangerous and addictive and expensive. And if we don't take the drugs, the body will reject your augmentations, and the elite and the corporations will make sure that they reject them. So they'll have their technology in us, and we'll be hooked forever. And then if we don't behave, such as my case or your case for interviewing someone like me, they have the power to turn off your limbs, the potential to turn off your eyes, send messages to your brain, and control your thoughts as if they have the power of God. These are the kinds of things that we're dealing with, and we have to understand that they're real because we have today the technology, and the elite feel they're so confident and cocky that they're absolutely sure that they have the technology to face, you know, God and beat him at their game. Well, I, I'm not sure if all of that, um, we've gotten to the point where we know that there is a pharmaceutical component to augmenting our neurological or cognitive capacities. I, I don't want to, uh, I want to give anybody a chance to uh, discredit what good work you're doing when something that on, uh, sort of, uh, where one thinks that suspension of disbelief is necessary, but I, I think there's so much that is already uh, 
in play that we can imagine has shown us as we we found out what this metadata mining has done um, in terms of our own privacy uh, considerations and what all these improvements that we want for ourselves the immediacy of of contact what that means of expanding our capacities to do more, to feel healthier, to to thrive, and what that means for that that piece that the other side, as you were alluding to, is it 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 is an avenue and an ingress for a more nefarious kind of a component in our society to use that as you have you described while we're augmenting the brain and the capacity that this gives a, the um, a controlling uh, uh, mechanizing uh, i want to i don't know why to call it the, a controlling um, uh, operator the chance to get into the mind and uh, jumble the, the extract from the mind what let, let's say in sort of a like in a surveilling kind of capacity send that person in and have that person's uh, memory then be scrambled for what um, what one is has done and come back and bring the capacity to track what was where that one was exposed i mean if you could explain a little bit about how that could work it's a it's a two way it's a two way uh, sliding door here about access to what well, one's... You know, have a look at you know it's a much easier example to understand for you know for your audience you know let's go back 20 years ago when when you know the first you know semblance of internet was started we, you know, if someone told you or any one of the, you know, audience listening to the show what we would be able to do, you know, via Internet and, 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 and via, uh, you know, following people and, and snooping on, on, on society, no one would believe us. It simply wouldn't be possible because 20 years ago, we don't have to go back that far from anybody. You have to go through a garbage can, you know, or you know, put a bug in their room and listen in. But today, you don't need to do that because the NSA and everyone else out there has the capacity to listen in on 7 billion people talking simultaneously through the super complex logarithms, algorithms. Sorry. And it just makes it so very, very easily. So we want, you know, from, from your typical you know, garbage collecting to, to data mining, such as Carnivore, then we had Promise technology. Uh, and now we have you know, this amazing technology as a result of what's out there. And then the next, you know, the next step in this development is nanotechnology, which is a tip, you know, right. pivotal area for transhumanism. It's the science of creating machines which are the size of molecules. And, you know, such machines could create organic tissues for medical use, which is an amazing thing, okay? And this type of technology could dramatically prolong lifespan. How long do you ask? Well, how about forever? So literally in less than one generation, humanity will, without any doubt at all, merge totally with technology by uploading individual consciousness to virtual reality. And this is what transhumanists are after. The whole thing about, you know, nanotechnology, what we have discovered about nanotechnology and how it's going to change reality. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a complete game changer. And, and when you speak of nanotechnology and comparing to, you know, to, to nuclear technology, for example, it would be like comparing, you know, bows and arrows, you know, to a nuclear bomb. That's how powerful nanotechnology is. And the, and the, the hazard here, as you mentioned, with, um, citing some work of Timothy Thomas, is uh, it's a title and it's a concept to leave listeners with. The mind has no firewall. Just to think, wrap your minds around that. And looking up the Project Pandora while you're reading this book or uh, doing your research before reading the book is, is another uh, 
a real important resource. And I will mention, I will give lots of resources uh, in the podcast summary because there are so many and we're, we, we didn't nearly get as much time as we wanted. And I also, uh, while I'm reminding listeners that we're talking and wrapping up this interview with Daniel Estelin, the author of Trans Evolution, The Coming of Age of Human Deconstruction, you can get more information. We're not quoting totally finished yet, Daniel, but I just want to make sure we get out on the website here for contacting him and following. It's www.danielestulin.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-E-S-T-U-L-I-N.com. Or the book uh, orders flying out of the uh, the press from the www.trineday.com. That's T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y.com. And so uh, you're in the middle of talking about this nanotechnology as we try our best to wrap up. Uh, yeah, let me just such an unwieldy one. Because, again, people don't understand what it is. And, you know, compare human hair to a nanometer. It's 100,000 times smaller than your strand of hair. Now, what happens, you know, uh, uh, from a physical point of view, at a nanometer scale, everyday materials start to act in unimaginable ways. The behavior of nanomaterials can change when the size becomes so small as compared to the larger amount of that same material. It's a space in which quantum behavior you know, begins to replace the Newtonian physics. You see, the way it works in physics is that in any direction you go far enough, you hit limits set by physical law. It's called quantum. It's called uh, Moore's law. Just like, for example, if you're running, you can run 100 meters in, in nine and a half seconds. Uh, uh, but you can never run in five seconds. There are just limits to what you can do. But okay? you can t- so take this to the tissue level. No matter how far you go, you hit certain limits, you know, at, uh, by physical law. Now, quantum mechanics, speed of light, gravitational forces, etc. Now, with the advent of this new science called nanotechnology, okay, related to genetic revolution, we can literally rewrite our genetic construct. So in a span of a generation, we have gone from genetically modified plants to genetically modified animals, you know, the, the, the famous dolly. With properties. And, and so the next step is genetically modified humans. Yes. And, you know, and this is what I was saying in the beginning, that this is the last generation, our kids, the last generation of fully human beings on the planet Earth. Their uh, offsprings our grandchildren are going to be anything but 100% human. They're going to be modified and improved in some ways, but all these improvements and enhancements and we'll, may come at a price. And we'll have folks look up all, all the um, all of the references that Daniel Estulin is talking about in his book, Transevolution, The Coming of Age and Human Deconstruction, and read what I think what really pl- plots the pathway is how many reports that have been issued over the last 60, 70 years that are anticipating all these things that are now amidst us. And I'm going to ask you to wrap up in less than 30 seconds because we are already running over. You do give us an element of hope that we have some kind of capacity to change for, um, with the, these pernicious trends that have such well, absolutely consequences. We do because, in just you know, less than 30 seconds. Humanists and, and the elite will never understand that we have this thing that separates us from, from animals anything else out there. It's called you know, a divine spark of reason, which helps us innovate, create, discover universal principles of nature, which improve the lives of everybody on the planet. And that's our objective as people to achieve immortality by conquering every galaxy out there so that a million years from now we'll have been living in all the nooks and corners of the galaxy but for us to do that, we have to put 
technology to good use, not to try to destroy humanity. Maintain the reason in our own human beings. So, uh, Daniel Esnant, I wish we'd had more time because uh, it's uh, it was fast that how you put that out there, and I'm, I'm concerned about listeners' um, willingness, uh, ability to to give that some context, and you can give a context with uh, looking at a read, and I'll give everybody a, a few references to some of those reports in the podcast summary. Daniel Esterlin, thanks for calling in all the way from Madrid today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Again. Okay, take care. All the best. Thank you, everybody, for listening.